Have you heard the old saying, don't judge a book by its cover? But that's what people do, right? We judge everything by outward appearances. In my experience, a great album cover can make or break the decision on whether I buy an album. So go on a journey with me as we look at some great album cover designs and talk about why I believe that you need a personal designer for your album artwork. This is Judged by the Cover. When we think of how a band is formed, we usually think of a group of guys or gals that start jamming together, writing some songs, playing some shows, and then eventually starting to record some of that music. All of this in hopes that one day they might get a record deal. Now, that's probably true for a lot of bands, but not for the band that we're talking about today. On this episode of the Judge by the Cover podcast, we're going to be talking about the great album cover from the debut self-titled album for the band, Boston. Before we get to the design, we do have to talk about the crazy story behind this album even coming into existence. But before we dive into this episode, make sure you hit the like and subscribe buttons if you're watching on YouTube. And if you're listening on your favorite podcast app, make sure you hit the subscribe button so you don't miss out on future episodes. Also, I would love it if you would leave me a review if you are listening on Apple or Spotify. Uh, It's a great way to let me know what you think about the show. It's also a great way to leave suggestions about what you would like to see on future shows. I would greatly appreciate it because it does help the show get exposure and get new listeners. Now, let's get to this album. The album Boston was released August 25th, 1976, and quickly broke sales records, becoming one of the best-selling debut LPs in the U.S. at that time. This album has won a lot of awards, and nearly the entire album receives constant rotation on classic rock radio. Think about that for a minute. Most bands would love one song to get that kind of uh, radio airplay, but there's at least five songs on this album that I know you have heard more than once on classic rock radio. This album has been referred to as a landmark album of 70s rock and has been included on many lists of essential albums. From the info that I found, it has sold at least 17 million copies in the United States alone and at least 20 million worldwide, making it one of the best-selling debut albums of all time. Pretty crazy, right? Now, how this album came to be is wild, like something out of a movie. We'll get to the design here in a minute, but as I dove into the story of this album, uh, I really felt that it was important to share to understand how remarkable it is. So let me give you the story in a nutshell. The band's leader, Tom Schultz, got started playing guitar and recording his own demos in a music studio that he built and funded with his paychecks from his job at Polaroid. Yes, that Polaroid, the camera company that doesn't exist anymore. He built a very impressive studio with state-of-the-art equipment and started making demos for fun. Uh, It was one of those things he was trained on piano, started playing guitar, and just started recording himself. That's really where he started. Uh, He would eventually throw together a live band. They would play some shows, record some more music, but it never really went anywhere. Uh, They sent out a lot of demos, but got a resounding no from everyone that they could get to listen to it. But Scholz persisted. He kept getting a couple of his friends to come in and sing and drum on the demos. He kept making the demos better. And then things changed when they got the attention and help from promoters Paul Ahern and Charlie McKenzie. I hope I got those right. These guys finally got in front of the right people at Epic Records and finally got the band a yes. Funny side story to this. um, It was only a year or so previous that Scholz got a signed letter from the president of Epic Records saying that they were not interested and uh, Scholz was one of those guys that he never let those guys forget it, even after you know they finally signed them. Now, at this time, this wasn't even a real band. And technically, they didn't even have a name. They'd been playing under a kind of an old band name that they had. So Scholz and company had to throw together a band, 
pick a name and get ready to showcase for the label so that the label could confirm that they were a viable act. And uh, somehow this all worked. They did have to cut some of the people from the band that they had gathered um, at the label's request, but it was at this point that the band Boston was born. The label liked the demos so much that they wanted the album to sound just like the demos. But they were insisted that the band get in the studio with a real producer and retract the songs. Now, it would seem for most budding rock stars that getting to fly out to L.A., work with a big-time producer, and cut an album in a real studio would seem like a dream come true. But this made Scholes mad because he agonized over these recordings for years, perfecting them to the point of almost wearing out the tape. Because this was a time of actual tape recording. There were no computer recording programs or anything like that. So literally... He, you know, the real kind of tape, he was wearing those out from his recording and re-recording and cutting and stitching and putting them back together. Scholes went along with this uh, at the label's request, and he met with producer John Boylan. Now, this is where the story gets crazy. Somehow, Scholes talks producer um, John Boylan into a scheme to trick the record label. They would fly the band out to L.A. and record with John while Scholes went back home to his studio to polish up his demos and make them the best that they could be. They did record one song in L.A. with the producer. Uh, I believe it's the last track on the song. But the rest of it was recorded, produced, mixed, mastered in Scholes' home recording studio. And the record company had no idea. They didn't find out until years later. And the producer was really cool. He uh, he shared the production credits with Scholes on the album. Uh, and I'm really surprised that that didn't throw up some red flags for the, for the record company. So to recap this crazy story, there's not a band when they get signed. There's no band name. The producer and the band leader conspire against the record company to keep the integrity of Scholl's recordings, and somehow this becomes one of the best-selling debut albums of all time. Just crazy, right? What a story. Like I said, something out of a movie. I, I think someday, you know, if we've got any producers watching this, you, you need to think about making this story into a, a film or a TV show. It's just absolutely wild. So... I know you've been waiting to hear about the album cover design. That's probably why you're here. So let's get to it. First, let's talk about the designer, Paula Shear. She's credited with the design of the album in collaboration with illustrator Roger Heisen. Paula Shear was the album art director at CBS Records from 1972 to 1982 and designed approximately 150 album covers a year. Yes, you heard that right. 150 a year. Let that number sink in. That is a lot of album covers. For those that are listening and not viewing the video, let me describe this cover to you. What we have is an illustrated cover. The background is a dark space scene with stars and planets. At the bottom, you have a planet that's blowing up. The main element is this groovy 70s orange and dark blue colored spaceship with these light blue uh, color booster flames coming out the bottom. Um, there's also another four or five other smaller spaceships that look to be fleeing the scene of this planet that is blowing up. The scene can be viewed a couple of different ways, that the spaceships are the reason for the exploding planet or that the spaceships are rescuing the inhabitants of the planet. Scholes, the leader of the band, prefers the second reason. Two other key design features are the city skyline that's in the window of the spaceship, um, and I'm assuming that's the Boston skyline. The other item is the band name, which is Boston in this really cool typography on the body of the spaceship. That's a touch that Sure is known for, her really cool typography. There's one element that Tom Scholes really wanted on the cover, and that is a guitar. Uh, to the designer, she thought this was cliche. She couldn't bring herself to just put a guitar on the cover. Uh, but what's really cool is they came to a compromise and they made the guitar 
into a spaceship. Yes, the spaceships on the Boston cover are guitars turned upside down. The sound hole on the guitar is where the flames of the boosters are coming out. Uh, and the tails of the spaceship are the headstock of the guitar. Uh, somehow, I have missed this fact for years. I think I've been listening to this album for probably 15 years or so. Uh, and actually didn't realize that until this year. Uh, and that's mainly one of the reasons why I'm talking about this cover. So to recap, starry space background, exploding planet with guitar-shaped spaceships fleeing the scene. To me, there is a great balance of complementary colors with the blues and oranges, interesting element use of the guitars as the spaceships, and the overall story it brings you to make up in your mind. To me, these are the reasons that make this cover great. Now, there is one person who doesn't see this cover as great, and that's the designer herself. Sure has been quoted as being mystified by the continued interest in this piece, saying it was, still is, and in my opinion, a mediocre piece of work. Those are uh, very nice words to say about something that you were part of the design for. (laughs) Oh, shoot. And so there you have it. What are your thoughts on this album cover by Boston? Did you know that those spaceships were guitars? Be honest with me. Did you know that they were guitars before I pointed them out? One thing that I pull from this cover and this story as a whole is the fact that the band leader and the designer had some differences in opinion on what should go on the cover. They both stuck up for what they believed in, but still came to a very good compromise. If it was left up to the band, you may have just had a guitar on the cover and maybe nothing else, you know, we'll never know. But instead, the designer found a really cool way to use the guitar in the piece. And in my opinion, came up with a really interesting element that people are still talking about today. Remember, this album came out in 1976. That's 46 years ago. And people, aka me, are just discovering the star-shaped spaceships. So if you're a band or artist with a song or project that needs a cover, I urge you to find a designer that can take your ideas and make it into something timeless, not just a cool image, that can take your guitar idea and turn it into a spaceship. So now it's time to move on to my new favorite part of the show. On my last episode, I asked you guys for a name for this segment, and I got a really cool suggestion that we're going to run with. So this is Near Miss Time. I'm going with this name, Near Miss, because obviously these designs ended up being the cover for the song or album, but I feel like they really missed the mark from a design aspect. My first Near Miss victim is Garth Brooks. My hero, my man, trust me, I love me some Garth Brooks, but his cover for the album, The Chase... Oh boy, it's rough. Um, I don't know if I can accurately even describe this thing to you guys who are just listening. Um, So Garth is in the center of the album wearing a black and white shirt. Now it's blocky, so it's like black and then white and the blocks below are white and then black. Um, And then the, the background is kind of the same. It's, you know, it's blocky. It's black then white the next set of blocks are white then black black then white so you kind of get this cool you know white and black kind of uh, theme going on Uh, and overall the photo kind of looks like a bad high school senior photo which uh, is going to be a topic for a different day on this podcast but yeah it's a little rough Um, then there's the fonts you have garth rooks in this aerial kind of like more like an Avenir bold style font. The B in Brooks is a scripty font. And then the name of the album, The Chase, is at the bottom in this same script font. And it's a weird script. It's not even a really good script font. Uh, so for being pretty simple, it's got a lot going on and not in a good way. To its credit, the album did come out in the 90s. Uh, unfortunately, there isn't a lot of design that came out of the 90s that aged well. 
Um, but if I was going to make a change that would make a huge difference on this album cover, it would be to simplify the fonts. That weird script B that's at the top in the middle of the name is just, it's strange. Uh, and the script font is, is terrible. Uh, I don't know if there's much you can do to save that font. But I think if you were to take the font um, and, and go with more of like a clean font, I mean, even kind of like what they use for the name, you know, Garth Rooks, uh, if they use a font like that for, for the name of the artist in the album, uh, it would have gone a long way. So this is one of those where it's a case of less is more. So simplify the fonts and that would go a long ways. We could talk a lot more about that, but Let's, uh, let's save some time for a different day. Coming up, we have more album covers to talk about. Plus, I also have a couple of really fun bonus episodes um, that I'm going to be throwing in here soon. So stay tuned. I've got more episodes coming soon. So that's it for this episode of the Judge by the Cover podcast. Remember to hit the subscribe buttons and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at jdubcreates for any news regarding the podcast. Thanks again for listening, and we'll do this again soon. Thanks. Proud member of the Podnuga Network.